You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Please make your way in your Bible to the Gospel according to Luke. Gospel according to Luke chapter 3. This morning we are picking up where we left off. We're going to begin reading here in a moment in verse 21. And we're going to read all the way through chapter 4 verse 13. We are going to do something a little different because as soon as we reach verse 23 all the way through 38 we arrive at 78 names and I am not going to take the time to read all of them I'm just going to point out a few that are significant and then we will continue to read through chapter 4 verses 1 through 13 so church this is God's holy inspired and authoritative word Luke chapter 3 beginning in verse 21 now when all the people were baptized And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Verse 23. Jesus When he began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, to Joseph, the son of Heli. And then skip down to the end of verse 31. As we look through this genealogy, we see that Jesus was the son of David. And then verse 34, he was also of the lineage of Jacob. And the son of Isaac, and the son of Abraham. And then verse 38. And Jesus was of the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was being led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. They ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you? I will give all this authority and their glory. For it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, 
Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. May the Lord now bless the reading and preaching of his word. In one of my favorite Sherlock Holmes stories entitled A Case of Identity, there is this exchange between Holmes and Dr. Watson that to me encapsulates what makes Sherlock Holmes such an intriguing character. This simple exchange between Holmes and Watson really captures the brilliance of these stories, which by the way, stories that have not lost their popularity after so many years. In this particular story, a woman by the name of Mary Sutherland She seeks the help of Sherlock Holmes because her fiancé, who was supposed to show up at, at their wedding day, never appears. And she keeps trying to reach him, and she hears nothing. And she hasn't seen him ever since. And so this woman goes to Sherlock Holmes and shares the details with, of, of her case with Holmes. They have a pretty lengthy dialogue, and then she leaves, and we read the following. Sherlock Holmes sat silently for a few minutes with his fingertips still pressed together, his legs stretched out in front of him, and his gaze directed up to the ceiling. And he said, quite an interesting study, that maiden. I found her more interesting than her little problem." Now, Watson, who was there the entire time, is perplexed. He's thinking, what did I miss? So he says to Sherlock, you appeared to read a great deal upon her, which was quite invisible to me. And here's the line. Holmes says to, Sherlock, or to Watson, not invisible, but unnoticed, Watson. You did not know where to look, so you missed all that was important. I love that response. Both of them heard the same thing, saw the same thing. She leaves. Holmes says, she's more interesting than her story. And Watson's thinking, what, what did I miss? He did not know where to look. Brothers and sisters, in the passage before us today, Luke reveals the identity of Jesus in such a remarkable way that at first it may appear to be invisible to us. But it's not invisible, just unnoticed. Which means we must know where to look so that we too don't miss what is important. Luke has just given us a wonderful picture of Jesus in these three 
pictures that we just read about. And we must know where to look so that we can see what's important. See, when, when we look at this passage before us, what, what appears is, is three unrelated sections of narrative about Jesus. We see his baptism, followed by this lengthy genealogy, followed by his temptation in the wilderness. And these three sections can seem unrelated, but actually they are a tightly connected theological tapestry. They are interwoven together. Luke is brilliant in his artistry. Uh, he paints a picture for us. And this picture reveals to us who Jesus really is. And here's why he does this. So that we on the front end can know who Jesus is. So that when we observe his miracles. Or we begin to listen to his teaching. Or one day. When we get to the end of the book and we watch him die upon a cross, we are fully aware who he is and why he came. See, before he does a miracle, before he teaches, before he does anything like that, Luke says, you need to know who he is. Because who he is will help you interpret all that you're about to hear about him. So who is this Jesus? What, what portrait does Luke paint for us here? What is his identity? Well, I want to share it with you in a single sentence and then spend the rest of our time unpacking the importance of this sentence. It's going to be up here on the screen. Here's what Luke just showed us. Jesus is the obedient son of God, the last Adam, the true Israel, who identifies with us and was victorious for us. That's what's right in front of us. We maybe feel like watching and say, that must be invisible. That's invisible to me. <laughs> it's just unnoticed. But the point that Luke makes here in this passage is Jesus is the obedient Son of God, the last Adam, the true Israel, who identifies with us. And was victorious for us. Now, where do we see this portrait of Jesus in this passage? If that's true, if that's the point Luke's making, okay. Josh, help me see that. Well, I want to do that. And then, the ultimate question is, why does this portrait of Jesus matter to us? So, I want to break down this passage now into four sections that will help us understand this point that Luke is making about Jesus. We're going to see his sonship, his role as representative, his obedience in the wilderness, and his victory over Satan and temptation. Let's begin with his sonship. Jesus' identity as a son, think of it like the, the thread that holds this tapestry together. If these three sections aren't separate related little stories, his baptism, the genealogy, and his temptation, but they're meant to go together. It, is there a thread that, that weaves these three stories together? And the starting place is to see, yes, it's the sonship of Jesus. Do you notice that in all three of these sections, Jesus is spoken of as the son? 
He's the son in the baptism. He's the son of Joseph, the son of God, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam. And then notice these, even these two temptations of three of the uh, two of the three temptations. He is what? He is tempted because Satan says, if you are the son of God. See, this term son of God, it actually only appears in Luke's gospel nine times. It's not the term Luke uses most often to describe Jesus. Only nine times does it occur. And out of those nine times, four of them are in this passage. This is a significant theme. Let's look at the baptism first. Pay close attention to the way in which Jesus' public ministry begins. That's what's happening now. Jesus' public ministry is beginning, and it began in this way, at the baptism. And what happened is illuminating, and it's filled with insights about the identity of Jesus. We're told that he was baptized by John. We're not giving a lot of other details. Matthew tells us more. But here, we're just given the details. He was baptized, and as he is praying, we're told that something happened of utmost importance. After he's baptized, something occurred that is monumental and significant. We're told the heavens were opened. Now, that's not happening all the time in the New Testament. That's not even happening very much in the time of Jesus. This is one of those unique, revelatory moments. The heavens were opened. Jesus is baptized. He comes out of the water. He begins to pray. And all of a sudden, there is this incredible moment that everyone there would have said, Whoa, something is significant. Or something significant is happening. And the first thing we're told is that as the heavens open, the Spirit of God descends from heaven on Jesus in bodily form. And Luke uses this simile. It was like a dove. Not literally did the Holy Spirit come in the form of a dove. He's using this simile. It's like this seeing a dove flying down and landing on someone. That means everybody could see it. This wasn't just some symbolic thing that not everyone had eyes to, to, to view. This would have been visible to everyone there. So all of a sudden, the heavens open. And the Spirit of God begins to descend on Jesus. And then notice what else happened. Not only does the Spirit descend from heaven, an audible voice from heaven is now heard. So with the Spirit, these aren't two separate events. Here's what's happening. As the Spirit is coming, we're hearing this voice. Whose voice is it? It's the voice of God the Father. And he says, as the Spirit descends upon Jesus, this is my Beloved Son. And he says to the Son, With you, I'm well pleased. And everyone there would have heard it. 
They would have saw what was happening. They would have heard what was happening. That This voice was an audible voice, the kind that Moses would have heard at the burning bush. It is unique, but it is a big moment. So what's happening here? Well, the identity of Jesus is being supernaturally revealed. As he comes to be baptized, because he's a man, there's nothing about him. Jesus doesn't walk around glowing. He just looks like a normal man. Not after this moment. No one who saw it that day would say, yeah, he's just a man. No, he's, he's the son of God. God made it abundantly clear who he is this man is the divine son of God. So what's with this voice and the spirit being given? Well, first of all, the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son was probably an echo of a messianic psalm, Psalm 2, 7, that says, this is my beloved son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. We could look at many passages about the Spirit of the Lord, but one that we're going to see next week in Isaiah 61 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Jesus is going to quote that next week. So the Spirit is being given, which shows that Jesus is the anointed one, and this voice says, This is my Son. Do you see what just happened at the baptism of Jesus? He's declared to be the Son of God, the Anointed One. That's what the Hebrew word Messiah means and the Greek word Christ means. Right there in that moment, it was clear who Jesus was. But not only is Jesus the Divine Son, He's also a human Son. The placement of Luke's genealogy, where he put it, is instructive. In all the other gospel passages, when they tell the story of Jesus' baptism, do you know what immediately comes after? His temptation. Luke doesn't do that. Luke all of a sudden takes these two scenes that should be going together and he opens them up and he sticks this genealogy right in the middle. Why? What's he saying? Once again, he's showing that Jesus is not only the divine son, he's the human son. He is a descendant of Israel. He is the son of David and the son of Abraham. But he's not only a human son who is a descendant of Israel, he is a representative of all of humanity because he is also the son of Adam. And then think about the temptation scene. As I mentioned earlier, two of the three temptations. The first one, in verse 3, what does Satan say? If you are the son. Verse 9, third temptation. If you are the son. And in this case, the grammar of that word if isn't, well, if you really are. He's saying it, if you are, emphatically saying, I know you are, then do these things. Do you see it now? All three of these passages, the baptism the genealogy and the temptation scene are all around Jesus' sonship. Which now leads us to the second thing we see. 
His role as representative. Here's what we see in this passage. Jesus came to represent his people by becoming the true Israel and the last Adam. Now, where do we see that in the passage? We'll start with the baptism. In verse 21, Luke says something that, once again, we can just read right past, but we can miss the significance. He says, now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. That, that opening thing. Now, when all the people were baptized, it doesn't mean all the people that day. It means now that all of the people who heard John's call were baptized. Jesus now comes. And he is baptized along with them. Why? What, what is with his baptism? If they've all been baptized and now at the end he's baptized, it represents his solidarity with them. He has solidarity with them. Listen to these, these two scholars. One a present day scholar, one a church father. Craig Keener says this. The baptism represents Jesus' ultimate identification with Israel. His baptism like his impending death, would be vicarious. What does that mean? Embraced on behalf of others with whom the Father had called him to identify. So as all these people have been coming out to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus, after all of them who were going to come and be baptized, he's the final one, it appears, and is baptized. As to say, I... The, these are my people. Athanasius, the church father, said it this way. When the Lord was washed in the Jordan, it was we who were washed in him and by him. That's what's happening in this moment. Jesus isn't being baptized like everyone else. He's not coming to repent. He's not coming for the forgiveness of sins. He's coming as a representative to say, these are my people. And what they're asking to be forgiven... I'm going to be the one who's going to forgive them by taking all of their sins so that they can truly experience forgiveness. Now, there's another clue that Jesus is the representative of Israel. If we recall the language of Exodus 4, verse 22 and 23, listen to what Moses, God tells Moses when he tells him to go to Pharaoh. He said to to Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that they may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, uh, go behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You ever wonder why God took the firstborn in Egypt? Because he says, Israel is my firstborn son. So Jesus is coming as the true Israel. And if Israel was viewed as a son, it makes sense now why Luke would place his genealogy where he does in relation to Matthew. You remember, Matthew begins his gospel with this genealogy. Luke places it between the baptism and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And by placing it where he does in the narrative, Luke seems to be making the point. Jesus was commissioned to go and represent his people. 
He is the true Son now. All that His people were called to do, He is now going to do on their behalf. And consider one more detail that makes this point that Jesus is the true Israel sent to obey in their place. Think about the temptation scene again. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. Just like Israel. And he faced the same temptations they faced in the wilderness. See, all the imagery that Luke is using here is to say, do you see who Jesus is? He's come to represent His people. But that's not all. Jesus is not only pictured as the true Israel who came to represent His people. Notice this, He's also viewed as the last Adam who represents all people, both Jews and Gentiles. Think about the genealogy again. Not only is Luke and Matthew's placement of the genealogy different, but think about how Matthew structures his genealogy. He begins with Abraham and goes to Christ. Luke begins with Christ and goes to Adam. That's significant. And notice right after we read in verse 38 that Christ is the son of Adam. We're told that Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, just like Adam. Do you see how all of this is going together? Luke isn't just throwing some stories together in a hodgepodge way. He's making this clear point. Jesus is the son, the true Israel, the last Adam. See, Luke is painting a picture for us. And his theological artistry reveals the true identity of Jesus. Now that brings us to his obedience in the wilderness. See, not only is Jesus the Son, and not only is Jesus the true Israel and the last Adam, he's the obedient Son. Look at the temptation scene again. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. When they were ended, he was hungry. Now, if we were to step back and observe this temptation scene from a 30,000 foot view. We're going to look at the specifics more in a moment. But if we're just to step back and look at this scene from a big picture kind of way. A clear picture emerges. Notice what's happening in this scene. Jesus was tempted to disobey just like Israel did. And just like Adam did. Exactly. Like the people did in, in, in the wilderness wandering. And exactly like Adam did. Now before I identify what's taking place in each one of these temptations. Let me just make two observations that I think support this point. First of all, 
in all three of these temptations, do you notice how Jesus counteracted all three of these temptations? We say, with the word of God, yes. But it's not just that he counteracted it with the word of God. He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Why? Why, why, why Deuteronomy? Well, his reason for doing so is strategic and instructive. See, Deuteronomy was the book of the law given to the second generation of Israelites coming out of the 40-year wilderness wandering. That's why he's quoting from Deuteronomy. He's not just saying, well, I'm going I'm to battle Satan with Scripture and I just love Deuteronomy. He's doing something here. The people are being tempted in the exact same way as Israel was in the wilderness. And the book of Deuteronomy was given to the second generation. So God's law was given to the first generation when they came down or they came out of Egypt. God gives them the law. They disobeyed the law. They all die in the wilderness. And before the second generation goes into the promised land, God says, okay, I'm going to give you the law again. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is about. You ever wondered why are there two books of the law? Isn't Leviticus enough? Because now this is a new generation. And they're told, that their obedience to the law would determine their future. And as you recall, they failed to obey the Lord and His law time and time and time again. Now this brings me to my second observation of the wilderness scene. This word tempt, that Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted, it can mean one of two things. It can mean to test or to entice. So it can mean how we use the word temptation. To entice someone to do wrong. That's one way the word can be used. It can also mean to, to test. To prove someone's faithfulness. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 2. Moses speaks to the people and says this. On behalf of God. You shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you. Testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. So that word test can mean one of two things. So the question is, how is it used here? And I think it's used in both ways. Jesus was being enticed to disobey. And he was being proven to be obedient. That's what's happening here in this passage. Jesus was led by the Spirit of God to enter the wilderness for 40 days. And there he withstood the test by being tempted for the sake of his people then and for our sake. And by doing so, he proved that he is the obedient son of God. So those are the first two big observations. Now look at each one of the temptations. Verses 3 and 4. First temptation. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. You see, in the same way that the Israelites, once they were brought out of Egypt, they began to grumble and complain and were tempted to doubt God's provision. Jesus was being tempted to do the same. 
You see, that's what's, that's what's happening here. For 40 days, God has called him to abstain from food so that God could, could sustain him and be his provision. Just like Israel in their 40 years of the wilderness had to time and time and time again have God provide for them. And he did. And what did they do the next day? Complained and doubted. And Satan says, hey, you get into all this. Just make yourself some bread. I mean, you are the son of God. And Jesus refuses to disobey. He withstood the test. He obeyed the law of God. And he trusted the provision of God. And by the way, this form of temptation was what Adam experienced in the garden. God said, you have this entire garden. Everything you need. Just don't touch that tree. I've provided richly for you. I've given you a garden. Paradise. All the food you could ever want. Just don't touch that tree. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. So not only is Jesus representing Israel, he's proving to be the perfect Adam. I'm not going to disobey the will of God. That brings us now to the second temptation. Verses 5 through 8. We're told the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all of this authority And their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to him whom I will. If then, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. During the second temptation, Jesus was being persuaded to forsake the Lord and to commit idolatry for earthly success. And isn't that what Israel struggled with time and time and time again? Idolatry? The history of Israel is a story of continual unfaithfulness and idolatry. That is why... In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, remember what Jesus just quoted. He quoted Deuteronomy 6, 13. Listen to what comes right after it. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in, the, in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you. And he destroy you from the face of of the earth. So why did Jesus say we shall worship no other god, have no other god before us? That's Deuteronomy 6:13. Deuteronomy 6:14 and 15 tells us the context of what Jesus was saying. He he was doing what Israel failed to do. Israel time and time again fell into idolatry. And Jesus said, I am not going to worship anyone but God alone. And consider this. 
Wasn't idolatry what Adam and Eve were tempted with? If you eat of this tree, you will be like God. See, Jesus is the true Israel and the last and better Adam. See, Jesus did not succumb to this temptation. He obeyed by refusing to worship anyone but God alone. That brings us now to the third and final temptation. Verses 9 through 12. Things get ratcheted up a little bit. Notice, notice now what, what Satan does. He now says, oh, we're quoting scripture. I'll quote some scripture. Verse 9. Satan took him to Jerusalem. And set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God... Throw yourself down from here. For it is written. Psalm 91 verse 11. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And Psalm 91 verse 12. On their hands they will bear you up. Lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered. It is said. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what's happening here in this final temptation, Satan entices Jesus to put God to the test just like Israel did. How do we know that? Once again, listening to how Jesus quotes scripture. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6 verse 16. I want to read Deuteronomy 6 verse 16 through 19 and you hear the context. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. As you tested him at Massah, you shall diligently keep the commands of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you. And that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting you out of your enemies but from, by thrusting out your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. So here is Jesus once again, living in Israel's stead, where they were tempted to put God to the test. Satan says, Jesus, do the same thing. And Jesus is the perfect Adam and the true Israel. Do you remember how Satan tempted Adam. He says, if you eat of that tree, you will surely not die. Want me? Let's, let's test God and see. Do you see what's happening here? The picture paint, Luke is painting is clear. Jesus is the obedient son. He's the obedient son. The last Adam. The true Israel who came to represent us. Now that brings us then to the fourth and final thing. We see his victory over Satan. We could just read verse 13 as just kind of Luke's concluding statement just to move on. But it's actually full of truth, rich truth. We, we aren't to miss 
It says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Did you notice Luke's language? Satan was defeated by Jesus. When he attempted him all the ways he could, he moves on. Don't just read that as some little passing statement. Do you know what Luke just said? Jesus was victorious. But you know what he says in the second half? But Satan isn't finished with Jesus yet. Jesus was victorious. But Satan isn't done yet. And what we discover here is one very important aspect of the mission of Christ. We begin to see here, and we will continue to see all throughout Luke's gospel, a very important aspect of Christ's mission that often we can neglect And that's Christ's defeat over Satan. The enemy of our souls. Throughout the rest of Luke's gospel, Jesus will encounter satanic powers. And every time he encounters them, he will overcome them. And in each instance in which there is this occurrence of Jesus encountering the satanic powers, we get a glimpse into why Christ came. These aren't just simply going to be stories of exorcisms. Every encounter reminds us of this battle that's been raging and that why Jesus came. Now listen, it's, it's good for us to remember that part of the spiritual battle we face on a day to day basis isn't merely with our own sin and unbelief. We do face a daily battle with our own flesh, our own sin, with our own unbelief. And if that's all we battled with, we got our work cut out for us. But we have an enemy. And he is at war with us. We have an enemy who seeks to blind us, to deceive us, and to condemn us. But listen, this is the good News. Here, here's the good news. If we belong to Christ, if you here this morning belong to Christ, Satan may be a lion who roars, but he has no teeth. He is a serpent who strikes, but he has no head because Jesus has defeated him. I love what Satan does here in this third temptation. Little did he know how prophetic his words are. He quotes from, Deuteron- or from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. You know what verse 13 of Psalm 91 says? You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. <laughs> Satan thinks he's wise, quoting scripture, walking into his own trap. Jesus is victorious, not just obedient, but victorious and able to save us. Now, why why does this matter? Why is this a picture worth painting? 
Why does Luke take all this time and this detail to make this point? I mean, let's, can we just get to Jesus? Can we just get to the miracles and the teaching? I mean, Luke, you've done so much to set us up. Thank you, but we're kind of growing a little impatient. Let's just move on, right? Maybe you felt that. Oh, but what Luke is showing us here, we need to see. So why is it important that Jesus is the obedient son of God, the last Adam, the true Israel, who identifies with and was victorious for us? I just want to draw your attention to one little thing that said in verse 23 that I think gives us our moment of application. Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years of age. Have you ever stopped and considered that Jesus spent at least 30 years of his life in an ordinary way? Why do you think God planned it that way? Dare I say it? Doesn't that seem like a waste of time? A squandering of years? I mean, why not right after Jesus is 12? Why does he start doing his ministry then? Had he began then, do you know how many miracles he could have performed? How many healings? Do you know how much teaching he could have given? Do you know how many places he could have gone? And yet, for 30 years, he lived an ordinary life before beginning his public ministry. Why? Have you ever stopped and thought about that question? What was Jesus doing all those years before he began his public ministry? Listen, he was obeying in our He was obeying in our place. Jesus' perfect life was necessary, not just his sacrificial death. We herald, rightly so, what Jesus did when he died on the cross for our sin. But the only reason it was a perfect sacrifice is because he lived a perfect life. So what was Jesus doing for 30 years before he began his public ministry? He was obeying in our place as the perfect son, the perfect brother, the perfect neighbor, the perfect worker, the perfect student. That's who he was. And that truth cannot be something we just move right past. Actually, we must read the rest of Luke's gospel through this lens. Jesus is doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. All the miracles, all the teaching, all of it has a purpose. It's making a loud statement. All that you need, only Jesus can accomplish. And here's what that truth does for us. It humbles us, and it should amaze us. It should humble us. 
We don't come in here this morning singing these songs because we're better. Because we have more moral understanding. It's not who we are. We're not more right with God because we've lived good. We come this morning to God, a holy God, because of Jesus and what he did in our place. Otherwise, we have no right to come. And that should humble us, should cut us down. If there's any self-righteousness that makes us think we're good, And it should amaze us. It should amaze us that Jesus came and did what we could never do for ourselves. So as we leave here this morning, what should be going on in our heart is just a sense of wonder and awe. A humility should be just pouring over our souls as we are aware of who Christ is And why he came. My prayer is that this picture will have that effect on you. That you will see that Jesus alone was the true obedient son. The true Israel. Israel, story after story after story after story disobeyed. God put all of that to say, you you think you can do it? Flip through these pages. Well, we just need to have, we just need to believe in a better humanity. Well, let's go back to Adam. Flip through these pages. Our solution is in Christ and Christ alone. So let us leave here both humbled and amazed by who Christ is. And what he did for us. Let's pray. Father we thank you for this beautiful reminder. This picture that you have. Inspired in scripture. And preserved in scripture. For our benefit. Lord I pray now that you. Would humble us. By what we've just heard. And by humbling us, Lord, we would stand amazed. If there's anyone here, Lord, this morning thinks that their relationship with you is based on how good they are. Or they think the relationship with you is based on how bad they are. Lord, I pray that this morning you have showed them know their relationship with you is based on Christ and Christ alone. May they turn to Christ and be saved. Thank you for your word. As we now turn our attention to the bread and the cup, Lord, would you continue to speak to us, to draw our attention to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.